This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Good morning. It's uh, three minutes after seven. You're listening to Classic Business Breakfast with myself, Nastasia Aronsa, and Arabile Gumete is in studio. So, Ara, here's something fascinating that you may not have noticed. So, every morning, well, every day, our producer puts together the lineup. Yep. And at the top, it'll read Classic Business Breakfast with MoneyWeb by Arabile Gumete and Nastasia Aronsa. So, today it says by Arabile Gumete and Arabile Gumete. So, I think you're doing this show by yourself. <laughs> look, look, there's a part that says you need to be in there. So there's like three parts where you are there. So don't go away just yet. I'll do everything, but just stay for those three parts at the very least. <laughs> Nonetheless, um, so AgriSA has noted uh, concerns about the potential negative impact of load shedding on the agricultural sector and the broader value chain. Of course, um, An email did come through from uh, ESCOM's media team saying that they've implemented stage three this morning, right? Yep. So we will be talking to Paul Makubi, who's a senior agricultural economist at FNB, about the impact of load shedding on the agricultural uh, industry and, of course, food inflation as well. Yeah, and there's also, of course, that continued war on ESCOM by the unions. Let's continue to chat about that. Pravin Gordon yesterday standing up in Parliament as well as they were debating the State of the Nation address. Of course, a whole lot of political parties saying that this plan to split up ESCOM is actually going to be... uh, a destroyer for the state-owned utility. We'll unpack that and just why there's a continued sense that this is privatization through the back door and what are the plans then that uh, unions think should actually have been implemented instead and whether they'll continue to lobby for that. And Stats SA released the unemployment figures, which eased marginally to 27.1% in the fourth quarter of last year. We'll speak to Lara Hodzis, who's an economist at FN, at uh, Investec, rather, about her thoughts with regards to those numbers. Yeah, and we'll obviously unpack as well. Just the plans to fix health in South Africa. Those plans seem to be delayed. Again, it seems to be a sticking point, not just in first world countries, but here as well. So it, um, it's clearly something that uh, Busa have their thoughts on and will unpack that as well at around 20 past seven. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Well, the Jersey went on an uptick again yesterday uh, on hopes particularly that trade tensions between the United States and China would in- indeed cool as negotiators were due to meet this week in Beijing. The all share then managing to gain at least 1% to close out the day at 53,960 points. Um, the banks gained 1.9%, industrials one and a quarter percent, while food and drug retailers two and a third of a percent there. However, property stocks did uh, fall uh, almost 1% then by close of trade. Uh, as I said, high-level negotiations set to take place this week with U.S. Trade Representative uh, Lo- uh, Robert Lighthizer and Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin scheduled to meet China's Vice Premier in beijing so a lot of hopes will of course be placed on that Uh, further data is expected to provide a clearer indication of how south africa's economy performed in 2018 mining production wholesale uh, motor trade statistics for december all due out as well tomorrow so we'll get a hint of how that is uh, going along as well we'll probably chat in just a moment or two about technology firm eoh's shares which tumbled yesterday after microsoft served the company with a termination notice on a 
contract that allows it to resell the software giant's licenses. What does this actually mean? I mean, that share price plummeting nearly 26% uh, yesterday to 19 rand and 80 cents after reaching its lowest level since March 2011. Also, uh, Spa's trading update, but it managed to gain 5% to 168 rand and 44 cents a share 13 rand 71 for a u.s dollar it's 15 rand 54 for a euro and a uh, british pound which set you back 17 rand and 70 cents uh, out in asia this morning it seems like it's all green one and a half percent one and a uh, yeah one and a half percent higher for the nikkei index while the shanghai composite is up one percent eight tenths of a percent to the good for the hang Seng out in hong kong as well 1312 dollars a fine ounce for gold platinum at $791 a fine, now $63.13 a barrel for Brent crude. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. It's eight minutes after seven and to take us through the market performance and what he expects for the rest of the week is Michael Trahone, who's a portfolio manager at Vestec Asset Management. Michael, thanks so much for your time. I'm going to start off this way. Have you read A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens? I got to the first page and then when it was one sentence, then I, <laughs> I put the book down. Was that back in high school? No, I was uh, I was trying to look intellectual for a girl <laughs> I was uh, going after. But uh, needless to say, it didn't work out. So here's this one sentence that... Um, Michael is referring to it was the best of times it was the worst of times it was the age of wisdom it was the age of foolishness it was the epoch of belief it was the epoch of incredulity it was the season of light it was the season of darkness it was the spring of hope it was the winter of despair and so it goes on for another probably 15 more words until um, it comes to the conclusion we were all going direct the other way the reason I bring this up is that on the one side, you have China-US relations, which could actually work out if they reach a deal before that deadline. And on the other side of the world, you have Brexit that is not going according to plan. And you had um, Bank of England Mark Carney saying that, look, we're running out of time and this could actually bring on to... well unleash an economic shock and we are 45 days before the possibility of it and markets like the idea that u.s china trade relations could be going really well how are you looking at that situation because right now i'm it brought to me a tale of two cities where things are going the other way on either side yeah, so I mean, uh, the one thing markets were worried about was that March 1st deadline that was looming. Uh, it, it doesn't look like, and it didn't look like uh, they were going to reach an agreement before then. But uh, Trump's saying as long as we've made enough progress, he's happy to push that uh, the deadline out. And that's the uh, one thing that the market really responded to yesterday, uh, saying that it's not the end of the world if March 1st comes and goes and there's no trade agreement, as long as progress is being made. And it does look like progress is being made. Uh, further talks happening uh, tomorrow and uh, uh, Friday between very senior uh, members of both both countries. Um, but then when you, you have a look at Brexit, I mean, someone was uh, putting things into perspective. The UK is will be the fifth biggest uh, economy in the world once they leave the, uh, the EU. Um, and that's actually quite small when you compare it to the top three, which are US, China, and then EU, quite a uh, distant third. So 
Yeah, as long as the first two countries there are, are on t- talking terms, I think that's what the focus needs to be on, and uh, Brexit will come and go and hopefully not cause too much uh, disturbance. All right. Yesterday's market performance, what did you make of it? Yeah, it's, again, positivity coming through globally. Um, there's been a lot of concern, one around um, the trade talks, which it looks like they're going in the right direction, and then the other one was what's happening with the U.S. shutdown. Um, and over the weekend, politicians were saying, we're not talking to the other side, they're being unreasonable. Um, and then we came into this trading week where it looked like there was a potential deal. And then yesterday, uh, Donald Trump saying uh, they've reached an agreement in principle. And even though he doesn't like it, he'll probably sign it because it's better than having a shutdown uh, happen again. So Mark's very happy about that. Uh, and that's just general positivity coming through uh, on the back of uh, still the Fed going to be keeping interest rates lower for longer. Right. And in terms of company news, there was SPA that caught my attention and then EOH and that share price uh, drop that I think caught everybody by surprise. What did you make of those two companies' uh, events? Yeah, so SPA bucking the, the retailer's trend where uh, instead of having a trading update, which is worse than everyone expected, or the trading update was much better than expected, and the stock was up almost 6% yesterday. Um, they're saying that revenue up 8.2%. But that's the number that you really want to look at is what's their like-for-like looking uh, doing. So uh, like-for-like sales up 3.8%. But if you focus just on the South African part, uh, like-for-like up 7.6% on inflation of 1.4%. Because mm. uh, normally uh, sometimes you have a very high inflation number and then your like-for-like is actually lower than the inflation number. And you haven't gone anywhere. In this case, they've done very well. Um, uh, saying that uh, a lot of the growth coming through selling more booze. Up, uh, there is spa liquor, or what I think they call it tops, eh? Yes. Selling 19% more this year than they did last year. So I don't know if that's an indication of what's happening on the ground. Uh, no electricity, we're going to drink. <laughs> did you just say they call it spa, you think? Have you never been to a tops? Uh, for a certain banking product, <laughs> you have to go to a certain uh, store that's uh, got their own liquor store, which isn't tops. Ah. So I go to the other one. Ah, okay. You yes. Are racking up those points, I see, huh? 15% back every time I swap. It gives me good reason to drink wine, Arabile. <laughs> Yeah, up yeah. 19%, which is very impressive. Uh, the Irish operations doing really well. I don't know if you remember when they bought the Irish operations, uh, Ireland was part of what they called the pigs back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and management timed that perfectly. They bought on the bottom, and that operation has done really well. So SPA ups 5% when all the other retailers are struggling. EOH doesn't seem to catch a break, at least last year or so. So they are trying to save their Microsoft contract. And as a result of their send statement that they published yesterday, that share price uh, closed a little low. Yeah, what was worrying is the share price was down 30%. And then there was a sense announcement later in the day. Um, and it's all on, apparently Microsoft let them know on Friday last week already that uh, they're cancelling uh, the sale agreement. EOH saying it's only 10 million rands worth of profits, which uh, is still significant, but it's not overly significant. I think the market's saying to you, what is the reason that they cancelled? Is there something sinister behind it that uh, you guys, uh, that Microsoft's worried about and that that might come back to, to buy shareholders? Um, you remember that... Uh, was it, I think it's October 2016, EOH was at 170 rand a share, it's not 19 rand a share, and what triggered it all 
was rumors of impropriety between EOH and government. And that just led a snowball. I mean, EOH growth strategy was to use their stock to go buy companies. As soon as your stock stops going up, then you can't buy companies and your whole business model uh, is down, is not doing so well. I mean, I'm wondering about Stephen Van Collar, the new CEO, I mean, he jumps from MTN, which had issues <laughs> now he's at EOH, and he's got more issues. I'm wondering if he thinks he should have stayed at MTN. Or just taken, I don't know, a sabbatical for about uh, a short while. But nonetheless, we still have Michael Traherne with us throughout the show. Uh, let's have a look at those unemployment numbers uh, that eased, mar- eased rather marginally to 27.1% in the fourth quarter. This is Lara Hodes. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. The unemployment rate fell to 27.1% in the fourth quarter from 27.5% in the previous quarter. Statistics South Africa said unemployment rose in the finance, private households, manufacturing and mining sectors. And to get into the numbers more in-depthly is Lara Hodes, who is an economist at Investec. Lara, thank you so much for your time. What did you make of the numbers that came out? Well, it was just a, um, a marginal moderation in the unemployment rate um, to 27.1%, um, as you mentioned, um, which isn't sufficient um, to, to drive any notable change and continues to be characteristic of, of a subdued domestic economy um, with only marginal GDP growth of around a half a percent anticipated for 2018. So just looking at a disaggregation of the data on an industry basis, six of the 10 sectors surveyed experienced a lift in employment. The finance sector recorded the largest gain, growing by 109,000 individuals Mm or 4.4% quarter on quarter. This was followed by private households and the manufacturing sector, where employment gains of 65,000 individuals or 5.1%. And um, 48,000 individuals or 2.8% were achieved respectively. In, in the big picture, this isn't, aren't massive numbers. You know, ed- education, skills development, employment is a, a very, very large priority of, of the government. And he, in his latest State of the Nation address last week, he stressed that the acceleration of inclusive economic growth and job creation coupled with the enhancement of the education system and development of skills needed now and into the, the future are two of the five most crucial tasks to be addressed at this moment in our history. So it's, it's very high on the agenda. So youth unemployment edged up to 54.7% in quarter four. This after it actually eased slightly in Q3 18 to 528 remains unacceptably high and and is also a very it, it's a chief um, area of change for government that they, they mentioned also in the sona the launch the launch of the youth employment service which entails placing unemployed youth in paid internships in companies across the economy so so things are being emphasized in that particular area. The weakening of SA's economic fundamentals, institutional strengths, and a number of its key institutions has contributed to depressed investor sentiment and so weakening in growth. Hopefully, the increase in policy and political certainty post 
an anticipated favorable May election outcome, together with the mending of structural inefficiencies in the economy, notably recently at the electricity supply with load shedding, um, should boost sentiment and which should drive fixed investment and therefore sustainable employment. Laura, thank you so much for your time. That's Laura Hodes, who is an economist at Investec. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Well, it's 7.23. Now, fixing South Africa's health system has once again uh, been uh, a delayed process. And as participants from last year's health summit say, they need more time now to do what is a proper job. One asks, how long is that exactly? And how long have they had even to try and come up with just a proper plan to to be put in place uh, in order to get this health system going? Now, the NHI has continued to be touted and mooted and even put into the budget speech at some point and now possibly retracted in some way because clearly we're just not getting it together we chat now to tanya cohen the ceo of busa as we unpack perhaps her thoughts and busa's thoughts around the delay of this and perhaps get your sentiments here tanya good morning to you just your your sentiments around the delay uh, around that uh, uh, nhi and fixing south africa's health problems here Well, good morning to you. And I think certainly from the private sector, we think that um, on the health summit outcomes and the delay in reaching the compact and the action plan, that that is well worth the time that we take. When we came together at the health summit last year, it was a whole lot of different constituencies from very different perspectives. And essentially what the summit allowed us to do was to share our concerns and surface a number of solutions from all the different stakeholders in terms of how do we address the crisis in the health system. What we've been working on since then is pulling together a compact and a concrete and tangible action plan that can take us forward in a collective way. And that takes time. So we think that that time is well worth it, but I think we're also very conscious of the crisis in healthcare. But that crisis has been there also for some time and we need to fix it in a sustainable way. So what exactly is behind the current delay then? Why, why are we delayed now? What, what is wrong with the current plan and why is it that you now need, the, the industry sort of needs a longer time now to get, the, get it to a proper job, as they say? So I think we must separate out the legislative process from the actual actions, and it's the actions that we're busy with. So what we're trying to do is pull together those collaborative opportunities. How can the private sector work with community, work with organized labor, work with government and the important other stakeholders within the sector to actually make sure that we bring all our efforts into a concrete and coherent plan? So that does take take time. So I use, for example, the, the one agreement that actually came out of the job summit but has an impact in the sector, which is the training of nurses. There are some regulatory constraints that have to be lifted um, in order for the private sector to participate in that. But there are a number of solutions on the table that really do require proper planning and integration. But if you look at the legislative process, and I think that is very different, that needs to follow a route through NEDLAC, through Parliament, and needs to be properly promulgated. And I think the fact that we've taken the amount of time we have to get the NHI legislation through is indicative of the complexity of that legislation. It really is not something that should be rushed. It is something that needs to be properly done engaged in detail and meaningfully engaged 
with the different constituents and stakeholders, and we've got to speak honestly to the challenges and tensions. I think everyone wants to see a universal healthcare system that provides to the population, but it's the modalities that really have to be figured out that are fit for purpose and that are suitable in the context of the current South Africa and our fiscal capabilities. Was there a sense of being naive in, in, in the initial process and assuming that we'd be able to get to the gist of all of this in a shorter space of time? That's one. Um, and, and two, does that also then mean that because we, we're looking at re, perhaps not redoing the whole thing, but doing a proper job of it, that we actually don't have an expected timeline for when this might come on board? I think there's absolutely no doubt that there's a constitutional imperative and there's a human imperative for us to fix the health system. And certainly what the National Health Insurance System seeks to do from an aspirational point of view is achieve that aspiration. So I don't think that it's naive. I think the timing, though, is something that we have to be very careful about in terms of overpassing. What we are aware of is that there's a lot of research happening. And obviously, as we go, we're learning. The fact that there have been pilots um, is important because I think that that enables the system to be tested. We're waiting for the results of those comprehensively. But I think that it is all a matter of how we bring this together in a coherent package that makes sense, that enables the private sector to participate, not only in terms of how it contributes as a valuable social service, but I think also recognizing that it is a commercial sector in its own right. So the sectors, I mean, the sector itself then is obviously struggling with a few uh, sort of challenges in particular, and you've mentioned some of those. Why is it important, however, for business to be involved in finding those solutions to those challenges? So I think business has an important role to play in contributing to solving the challenges of the health system overall. So be it in the space of innovative pharmaceuticals and the manufacturing and innovation capability that business has, or the hospital space that is available in private healthcare facilities that could be utilized by public healthcare users, or in logistics or governance or training um, and education. There's a huge amount that we've seen that the private sector can actually bring their expertise and their capabilities to help solve this problem. And then on the other hand, we know that the private healthcare sector in South Africa is a very competitive and viable commercial sector. It has huge investment potential. It's a great job creator, particularly in terms of fourth industrial revolution and we hear all the changes that are going to be happening with jobs. But health is one of the sectors where jobs actually are expected to grow. It's an innovator. And it has massive social impact. So it really is a sector that we we should be looking after and leveraging. I think it accounts for almost 10% of GDP, um, and it is a highly strategic sector in the economy. But I think that's the healthcare sector in isolation. If we look at the contribution of health to our economic outcomes, we need to only look to the recent World Bank Human Capital Index, which basically determines a country's economic potential with reference to its health and education outcomes. And as a country, we need to get that right.
It seems very difficult, not just for us, but it is also uh, a problem that we've been seeing just, I mean, just look at the United States and how they've struggled with uh, the exact same thing as well. So we'll continue to march on and look at this and see how exactly it can be fixed for future purposes as well. Tanya Cohen, appreciate your time this morning. The CEO of Bursa, just talking about the delay with regards to fixing South Africa's health system and perhaps getting NHI on board and how long that's going to take because the president has now said and the, the health minister saying that indeed they need to be some sort of delay now in order to be able to do what is a proper job how many more summits becomes the question how long are they going to wait and how much more work needs to be done we'll get that for you as time progresses 7 30 your news headlines every morning arabile gomede and Anastasia aronsa on classic business breakfast with MoneyWeb. So, th- 7.31, AgriSA uh, released a statement saying that it has noted concerns about the potential negative impact of load shedding on the agricultural sector and the broader value chain. And to talk to us a little bit more about that um, is Paul Makube. But before we get to him, we're going to talk to Patrick Kantz. Who is, uh, who wrote an interesting article about the mining on the JSC is not what it used to be. Patrick, thank you so much, uh, for your time. So why is it that way? Good morning, Mr. Yeah, it's an interesting story. Uh, if you consider that the JSC was really built on, on mining and built on South African mining in particular. And over the last century, the JSC was the, the world's best performing stock market, primarily because of uh, the South African mining story. But of course, over the last 20, 30 years, mining in South Africa has been on a decline. Uh, and that's reflected in uh, the stock market as well. Uh, 10 years ago, there were 11 mining stocks uh, in the top 40 on the JEC. And together, they constituted about 41% of the index. Um, today, uh, there are only three mining counters on the top 40, uh, making up about 18% of the index. And most interestingly is that those three counters, BHP, Anglo-American and Anglo-Goldashanti, uh, are mostly operating outside of South Africa. Investors usually move with their money, Patrick, it's Arabile here, but you know, it, it kind of gives you a sense and an understanding that clearly the situation locally is not one that they, you know, agree with, attest to and, and really take in, uh, you know, with, with any sense of joy. Can South Africa's mining sector sort of become uh, joyful again, considering the fact that we have now put in legislation like the mining charter? Or have, you know, do investors just think once things have gone bad, they've gone bad for good, and it'll take almost forever to get back in that, in that space? Well, the tragedy is that we have, unfortunately, uh, created so much uncertainty in the sector that it's going to take a lot to, to encourage investors to to come back again. Um, there, there's no doubt that there still remains great potential in the sector. Uh, South Africa's regional space is sort of terrible. A lot of it has, you know, if you look at gold and platinum, it's a bit more difficult to mine, but there are other uh, commodities, such as manganese, um, which offer great mining potential. The question is making it attractive for people to come and mine this um, And although uh, you're correct that a little bit more certainty has been brought in by the new mining charter. The damage that's been done, particularly by the last uh, Minister of Mineral Resources, was so extreme uh, that it's going to take a lot to encourage the best to come back again. 
Yeah, and, and walking out is clearly the one thing that seems to have happened quite a lot then. So should you be looking at the mining sector when investing in it in particular as saying to yourself that I'm only looking then for international exposure uh, and if you're looking for the South African exposure that you should perhaps you know be looking at just those specific companies at it because it, it clearly is very difficult and how does the change in technology still uh, you know change things up are we still only looking at the more mechanized mines than we are at the labor intensive ones because that that says a lot then for the likes of Sibanye. You know, obviously, mechanisation is, is a big issue in South Africa, where labour is a, still a really uh, strong political force, and so that is a consideration that, that people have to take. But, but in terms of investing, um, there are really two sides to that story. The first is that um, because the the large miners uh, and Glencore, I didn't mention, it's not part of the top forty, because although it is in fact larger than Anglo American, uh, its local prefect is small for to make things possible. Um, if, you, if you consider Glencore, BHP, and Anglo-American, um, they have actually provided better Rand Hedge than any of the other uh, big Rand Hedge stocks in the JSE in the last year. I think it's called Mustache or Richmond or British American Tobacco, which people usually think of as the Rand Hedges that you should be investing in. Uh, all three of those performed quite poorly over the last 12, 13 years, uh, whereas the big diversified miners have done quite well. So yes, there you, you've been able to diversify away from South African specific risks, uh, and you've got the benefit of the RAND hedge. That doesn't, however, mean that uh, there aren't opportunities in those signing companies that are focused on South Africa, uh, because what often happens in investing is that when uh, sentiment is at its poorest, uh, opportunities present themselves. Now, there are two good examples, uh, the first being South 32, uh, which was spun out of BHP, uh, in 2015, and when it listed, uh, many people looked at it. Well, a lot of South African assets here, big problems in that country. Zuma was president at the time. Zwane was still the minister of mines. People didn't like what they were seeing, and so the share price listed at around 20 and declined to under 11 rand. So it almost halved uh, in a matter of a few months by the end of 2015. When Santanene was as finance. And then people started looking at this and thinking, but hang on, um, there are actually some very good assets in this company, um, making a lot of cash, uh, seems to be well managed. And so actually from that point, the share price is more than tripled. Uh, the South 32 from under 11 Rand is now trading at over 36 Rand. Um, African Rainbow Minerals, another story. It, it peaked way back in, in 2008, the height of the commodity movement at around uh, 300 rand, then declined and wobbled around a bit, and eventually uh, in uh, 2014 was up at over 230 rand. And people thought at that point um, this was now a, a great buy, but in fact it declined very sharply from there as commodity prices fell out of the bid. It went all the way down to under 40 rand. Again, at which point people were thinking, well, this is a... South African companies, South African assets, now December 2015, everything is going wrong in the country. But you know what? This company actually has some very good assets, very good mines, uh, making a lot of cash. And again, from that point, from under 40 rand, she is now trading at over 150 rand. So it's not to say that there aren't investment opportunities in South Africa uh, because the market cycles are such that 
when people are at the most cynical, when sentiment is at its worst, then sometimes that's when opportunities are going to present themselves. And that has, in fact, played out in, in different parts of the market. Yeah. All right. Well, Patrick, appreciate your time this morning. Patrick Hans from uh, MoneyWeb there, chatting to us just about how the mining sector just hasn't been the same uh, and isn't what it used to be, particularly on the JSC. So those mining counters really struggling. For the first month of 2019, resources have performed in line as well with the wider market, both going up around 2.8%. We've seen better performances with regards to trading updates as well. A lot more from the PGM space than it is from uh, the gold space. Yesterday, we saw the likes of Harmony Gold as well coming out with a trading update on that front uh, seeing their profits go down I think it was 94% so uh, a little bit of hurt coming through on those counters but overall seemingly and then of course yes coming from a low base but nonetheless you know it is it is still uh, a, a slightly better picture coming through from that mining sector so perhaps there is some hope with regards to the changing story as things perhaps begin to progress in that sector and of course we just come from that mining in Daba so who knows Indeed, it is uh, significantly important that what is 8% of South Africa's GDP continues to thrive. It's 7.40, your traffic. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. 7.43. A little earlier on, we mentioned that AgriSA, which is the Agricultural Industry Association, highlighted that electricity is an important input cost for many farmers, especially farmers that depend on irrigation. And uh, the news that we're getting around load shedding will likely impact farmers as well as uh, food inflation. But to talk to us a little bit more about it is Paul Makube, who is a senior, rather senior agricultural economist at FNB. Paul, thank you so much uh, for your time this morning. Load shedding, I think this morning we got an email uh, from ESCOM saying stage three is already in place. What's the effect of uh, this load shedding on farmers going forward if the situation isn't solved? Uh, good morning, good morning for having me. Uh, the impact of the of the of, of this interruption in load, in load uh, with, with, with our supply, uh, you know, has uh, you know negative impact on on uh, you know uh, on, on producers, uh, you know, especially your 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 irrigating farmers, your dairy farmers, uh, your your poultry farmers who have to keep lives, you know, you know, beds uh, alive in their in their houses, uh, and also your your food farmers who have to maintain cold chains, uh, you know, to ensure that uh, you know you don't have uh, a reduction in, in in shelf quality of their of their product. So it has a huge impact on the whole value chain in, the agri- in, in, in agriculture. We know that farmers were battling with some of the revenue losses uh, as a result of the drought. And the key areas there, I think it was the Western Cape and the Free State that are still recovering from that drought. How are those particular areas doing thus far? And do you see a light at the end of the tunnel that things could be back on track? Well, uh, things could be back on track. I mean, we've seen in some areas uh, an improved production conditions with rains across the board. But you still have, uh, you know, dryness in parts of the uh, free state and, and, and the northwest. Uh, the Western Cape, uh, you know, is, is slowly recovering from, from, from the drought situation. But, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, farmers have been under financial pressures uh, in the past two years, uh, actually three years, uh, following the massive drought that we had two years ago and the drought in the, in, in, in the Western Cape uh, about a year ago. Now, uh, all this means, uh, you know, if we have sustained, uh, you know, power interruptions, 
uh, increased pressure on, 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 the, on the margins of producers, and therefore this cost uh, of having to uh, you know, uh, generate themselves the power to keep their, their uh, production uh, systems going and means increased costs on their on their part, and eventually this cost has to be passed on to the consumer. So uh, this uh, has an implications of a threat to to, to the inflation outlook, uh, and of of course uh, not only the inflation outlook, we might uh, also have uh, an impact on the, uh, the the decision by the Reserve Bank in terms of uh, uh, maintaining flat interest rate or hiking interest rate. Right. Um, on well, last week Thursday, President Cyril Ramaphosa, um, you know, during his State of the Nation address, I noticed that agriculture featured quite uh, prominently in his uh, sona. From your perspective, uh, listening to that, or perhaps even reading the text from that speech, do you think that um, it spoke to the key issues of the agricultural sector? Yes, definitely spoke to the key issues. Of, of course, uh, you know. Uh, the, the details are still more immediate in terms of uh, how you know they, they are going to help uh, you know um, rejuvenate the, the agricultural sector. But I think the the fact that there is a recognition that agriculture plays an, it will, will play an important role, especially in job job creation, is is, is commendable. And I think coming I mean, from the, the panel that has been set up in terms of uh, advising the minister on the agriculture and actually and, and land, uh, you know some of the aspects that have been uh, discussed there. Uh, already being reflected in the in the in the in the speech, so we're positive about the you know the intention. But the, the what is more important is actually the detail as to whether you know the you know they would be followed through. Paul, thank you so much for your time this morning. That's Paul Makube, who is a senior agricultural economist at FNB. Every morning, Arabile Gumede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business Breakfast with MoneyWeb. It's just gone 7.48, so let's take a look at some other news making headlines now. And Kira has seemed to have uh, brought out their earnings as well. Then for the full year ended 31st December 2018. And of course, their dividend declaration. Now, uh, yes, revenue going up around, uh, what is it, 19% on this. Uh, just taking a quick look uh, at the numbers. Uh, an increase in headline earnings as well of 23%. Uh, that uh, seems to have been going well for them. I, I always just get fascinated with some of the ratios here, and I just wanted to point out uh, just a, a few of these as well then. Um, the number of campuses that Kira has is 68 as of the 31st of January 2019. That's 164 schools for them, and that brings them to 57,276 learners. Now, the number of uh, or the ratio for learners uh, per teacher ratio, that is remaining the same at 17. So for every 17 students, you have one teacher. Man, would we love to have that in our uh, um, uh, public education space as well, if possible, if only that were possible. But nonetheless, uh, Michael, uh, your sense of these earnings? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it shows what the private sector can do when uh, they let let loose on on uh, on any uh, eco- uh, sector in the economy. So mm. good numbers coming out. Um, what stood out to me is the number of learners I have is up sixteen percent. Mm. Profits from individual schools is up thirty two percent, and that speaks to the fact that once you've built the infrastructure, once you've got the teachers there, those are sunk costs, and every new learner that you add 
is basically profit straight to the bottom line. So yeah. 16% new learners, 32% increase in uh, EBITDA profits. Um, it shows how profitable this business is. Uh, great to see that they're declaring a maiden dividend. Um, and that's because, uh, I don't know, if was it last year or the year before where they spun out uh, Stadio? It was yep. last year. Um, and Stadio is going to be the one, uh, which Stadio is the university uh, yeah, um, operations, which are no longer part of this. And because uh, they don't need to fund building a university, so they can now pay shareholders dividends. So uh, being patient has worked for shareholders. Yeah, it's cheap as hey. All of that has seemingly come to the fore for them. And, and as you said, it is, it is looking like a good set of earnings. Profit for the period, they're going up 22% as well to 242 million rand on that front as of 31st December 2018. So an interesting and a good set of earnings coming through there from their front. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Need to catch my breath there. Um, <laughs> I just saw something on uh, Sands. Alan Gray now owns fifteen percent of Woolworths. Um, I'm wondering what they. I don't know. They must know something we don't know. That I don't know. But that's a interesting note that I just. So yeah, they, they've always been, or oh, not always, but uh, for the past while they've been significant shareholders. I'm not sure if that fifteen percent is an increase or a decrease. Because um, uh, that sends announcement didn't actually say how it yeah. moved, so it's probably just a bit of rebalancing. Uh, you know, all the pension fund money that would have flowed into Alan Gray at the beginning of Feb, that's got to find a home somewhere. Here's something that I've been wondering, and I know Arabila, I asked you this question last year sometime. What phone do you have? I have a Samsung. You, Michael? Uh, iPhone. Oh, yay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, the Wall Street Journal has an article titled, uh, Apple loses ground to Huawei as China shipments slump 20%. So, Huawei uh, still in the lead there. Um, as I mentioned, um, the shipments of Apple smartphones in China in the last three months of last year were down 20%. And, uh, yeah, and shipments for Huawei were up 23%, giving it a 29% off the market. And, again, cementing its position as the country's top phone vendor. Yeah, look, it, it is beginning to make sense. And I guess you can add this to the slew of trade uh, situation uh, numbers and issues that, of course, a whole host of people will be looking at. Because, you know, you, you get an American, you know, sort of brand sort of declining somewhat in Apple and Huawei then picking up so much so uh, out in Asia. Yeah, it's clearly going to be, uh, you know, uh, a sticky situation for the two and they'll probably try to uh, try to fix that one out a little bit. Now, Michael, you were just speaking about that, that sense announcement as well. Just wanted to get back to that acquisition by Alan Gray uh, of those Woolies shares. So they say they acquired an interest in ordinary shares of the company. And my assumption then is just that that if they have acquired, that means it probably went up. Is my just my assumption? I, look, I also could be wrong, but you just never know with these things. Also, so that brings it to fifteen point one six one three percent of the total ordinary shares. Um, a whole lot happening. Of course, ESCOM has been in the news quite a lot, and we'll continue to unpack that. Moody's warning uh, South Africa about the power supply, saying that it will remain constrained. The power system in South Africa, anyway, will remain constrained at least until twenty twenty despite the new two power stations. And of course, we just heard word as well that those power stations themselves are faulty um, and there's been mechanisms and other things that aren't working the way they should. Um, Fire Minister of Public Enterprises, Pravin Gordon, has even brought in experts 
to try and tackle that ESCOM crisis. So what now? Where to from here? And is this really privatization by the back door? And why so? Is is this not just supposed to help the operations keep things as they are uh, in a sense of employment, uh, in the sense of uh, uh, you know making it a little bit more effective and efficient? It seems to be uh, the sentiment not shared, however, by NUMSA. So let's speak to the spokesperson, uh, Pagamile Shubi Majola, is on the line with us now. Uh, Pagamile, thank you so much for your time. Your your essence as a NUMSA is that this is privatization through the back door. Won't you just explain that to us? Yes, indeed. Um, thank you for having me, Arabile. For us as NUMSA, we are convinced that this is privatization through the back door. We, we, we know, for example, um, that this has been the intention of the ANC government for the longest time. Their intention all along has been to privatize our state-owned entities, um, and in particular ESCOM. This is an agenda that they have been trying to impose for decades. They've been stopped at various points by labor, um, but we believe that finally uh, Ramaphosa is implementing the strategy. Um, We say this because when you break ESCOM up into three parts, uh, we can expect a lot of jobs to be lost uh, as part of that process. Um, also, when you look at this IPP project, for example, where already um, you've got private players that have, are entering the space through this renewable energy project, it has had a very detrimental impact on ESCOM's, um, uh, on ESCOM's ability to, to, to make money. I mean, the IPP project costs ESCOM gone billions. They pay more to procure power through IPPs than they do through coal and it's part of the reason that it's collapsing is because of the IPP project for the benefit of business. And even when you read the SONA, um, the, the, the president makes reference to selling off uh, so-called non-core assets of ESCOM to the private, private sector. That is privatization. And this is why we reject this idea that's being, you know, uh, by, by some in the ANC that okay. this is not privatization. Okay, I must interrupt you then and just ask in, in that sense then where, where some of the information is coming from. Because as far as I know, the IPPs in themselves are not meant to cost ESCOM uh, as, as, as much as you're, you've noted and have put forward. That's one. Two, the whole aim of the IPPs is to actually boost the system in many ways. And it would then seem that the situation of uh, um, load shedding would actually be worse if we didn't have the IPPs, and at the same time, the system as it is right now, as you said, this is a, an agenda that has been pushed, you, you know, as you're saying, for perhaps the last decade. Would things not be better then had it been put in place over the last decade? And would things not, are things not worse off now because we've left it for too late? Uh, it's a fact, Aravila, that the IPP project is costing ESCOM billions. Kulupasi will confirm this himself. ESCOM purchases electricity at 2 and 20 cents per kilowatt hour from IPPs when the same amount of electricity can be procured at less than 50 cents and then sells it to the market at 86 cents. That's a business model that co- would collapse any organization and it's collapsing ESCOM as we speak. In the financial year 2016 to 2017, it cost ESCOM 9 billion rand. That's a fact. Also, on the issue of um, the... Uh, the IPPs being able to help us. We've just had stage four load shedding. Where were the IPPs? Where were the IPPs to kick in 
to assist us with uh, generating electricity. This system is not helpful at all. It costs more than it's worth, and it's collapsing the state-owned entity. And the reason the ANC is uh, entertaining it is because you've got people of the ANC elite, like Patrice Mutsepe, who has interest in IPPs. He has a renewable energy company that's benefiting from IPPs, and he's related through marriage to the president as well as the energy minister. So it's not in their interest to end a project even though it is detrimental for the working class majority and the South African community at large, they're not interested in terminating that project because as members of the ANC, they are looting through the IPP project. We maintain that this process is a way to privatize. Privatization has taught us that it is not beneficial for the community at large. Nowhere in the world has privatization resulted in lower costs for the consumer. Already, when you read the SOMA, the president talks about ESCOM being given an affordable tariff increase. So we know that prices, energy prices are about to go up. So this is not good news. It's not good news for the working class okay. because it will result in job losses. And it's not good news for us because we're going to pay more yeah. money. I am going to, I am sadly running out of time, but I need to then ask you this. If we... If we're talking about the tariff increases, you note on one hand that, yes, we know that, of course, tariff increases are going to then increase in that sense. We've left things the same way for the longest time and nothing has changed either. Would you not agree then that it is time to change the way things are done and this deserves a fair chance before it is written off outright? We have been saying that things must change, but things must change in the interest of the majority not in the interest of the elite. The problems that have been happening at ESCOM, you know, for example, ESCOM's um, financial crisis has been caused by several things. One of the biggest uh, holes in ESCOM's finances is actually not labor. The CFO of ESCOM has said this many, many times, that its biggest costs are the costs of coal. And there's a, a real problem in the manner in which ESCOM management has, has, has allowed itself yeah. to be manipulated. And, 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 and as far as we're concerned, it's, a, it's corruption. Sure. Because when you look at the coal cost, and at that time, ESCOM was actually purchasing less coal. But, yeah. but spending more. So nobody's done anything about that. Nobody's done anything about recovering those monies. No monies have been recovered uh, from the boat project which overran. No companies were penalized for their shoddy work. Yeah. So now you okay. want the working class to suffer through privatization, something that's only going to benefit a handful of people. We know for a fact that right now, South Africans at large cannot afford electricity. Indeed, but they our can't. government is talking pa- about Sadly, I'm going to have to, to, to cut off our, our conversation. You have to head to news headlines, but I really encourage you to, to join us perhaps in studio as well sometime and that we can actually flesh out the conversation a whole lot more and actually really give this uh, a, a greater chance. But I really, really appreciate your time as well this morning and hope to chat to you again. Pagamile Shubimachola there, the spokesperson for NUMSA. We've come to the end of the show as well. Tash, we'll do this again tomorrow. It is again stage three load shedding. South Africa, so please do take care of yourselves and uh, watch those schedules. Goodbye from me. It's 8.01.